0: morning everybody. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I would like to say this morning that we are in Jesus the brave. You guys were, you forgot that I tried to teach you this. Let's do it one more time. We are in Jesus the brave. I'm going to try to keep getting that going around here. And then soon We'll be cheering that out before we start sermons. That's my plan. We've been in a series on Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, for a long time, and Mark chapter 10 has been unraveling me. It's very difficult for me this morning, even, as I think about coming up to preach this next passage. The three that we've already been in in Mark 10 have just continued to revolve in my mind and heart, and and it's intense for me. This morning's text is really intense, and it, and it drives the same theme we've been looking at even deeper into our heart and soul. And there's a proverb that very much captures, I think, why this passage grabs me the most. Proverbs 14:12 says, there's a way that seems right to man, but it is a way that ends in death. There's a way that seems very wise and good and right, but it's a way that, that kills us. And so, I think that this is what you'll see happening with James and John, the disciples this morning. And the text we're reading has to do with power, and the question I'd ask is, what is power? What is Christian power? think of power as the ability to affect or change reality. That's a a strong force, if you will, the ability to change or affect reality. And I jump all the way back to the garden, and I see God giving power to Adam and Eve. He says to them, I'm going to breathe my image into you, and I want you to become cultivators of this earth, not just preservers, But cultivators, take that wild and woolly meadow and turn it into a field that produces fruit. Cultivate, adapt it, change it, make it do good things. He gives power to us. So the phrase power corrupts needs to be cautiously approached. I think that represents something we often see in the world, but it's not inherently true that power in and of itself corrupts. God gives power to us, but something has happened since the garden that causes us to get confused about what God's power really is. What is Christian power? And then what happens when a Christian embraces a kind of power that's actually antithetical to Christ? It's the opposite of what God is doing in Jesus in this world. Is it possible to desire very good things but also to use a kind of dark power to achieve them, all the while thinking we're doing good stuff. There's a way that seems very good and wise and seems right to man, but it's a way that kills us, it leads to death. So I wanna turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 has been reading a little bit like a mini-series, okay, we've had three episodes so far. Today we're in the fourth, fourth episode. And at each turn, at each episode, Jesus is walking into these stable, proven systems of living that everybody is calling godly and good and functional and biblical. And Jesus walks right in and he says, this is not godly and it's not biblical, not by a long shot. (laughs) So he's creating quite a stir, you know. Is that your best held practices that you have learned for generations are actually really wrong. And, and people don't generally say, oh, good, okay, thank you. I'm, I'm stoked you're telling me everything I'm doing is, is wrong. So there's some tension growing. He's been uprooting these firmly settled conclusions. And he's been telling them that his own future is quite grim. It's going to get pretty bloody here in a second, he's saying. You might paraphrase it. Your powerful hero, your Messiah, this anointed one, this anointed one that you've been waiting for, he's going to become a serious loser who dies quickly without a fight. You know, that's, that's unsettling. <laughs> they're, they're not excited about that. Oh, and also, by the way, If you want to join me, uh, you're going to need to join me in the same kind of humiliation and weakness that I'm talking about. That'll be how you enter into eternal life, the real kingdom of God. And we're just like, what in the world? You're supposed to save us from that kind of stuff, not draw us into it. So the last episode ended with that really confusing cliffhanger in Jesus's closing line, if you remember it. I'll paraphrase again. He's he's coming to them and he's saying, Everything in the real kingdom of God is very different. It's very different than what you think you know. The people whom you would currently identify as the best and the brightest and the most blessed by God are actually the last in God's kingdom. And the people that right now, the way that you would identify them as sort of the weakest and the worst and the most insignificant, they'll be first in the kingdom of God. You need to know that. And, And as we hear that, we're like, wait a minute. That doesn't seem to fit. So we're left with this sort of what the heck kind of moment at the end of the last episode. Now, this one, if you could imagine Jesus as a fireman, okay, I thought this would work pretty good. Imagine Jesus as a fireman battling this five alarm blaze and and he's in this building and everybody's just feels warm and toasty and he's like you're you're burning to death here and in the first three episodes he is just chopping through the door chopping through a wall he's getting into the heart of it to say this thing is collapsing and today he gets to the belly of the beast and there's a steel riveted vault door that mankind has has worked forever to keep dead bolted, And there's Jesus with his fire axe, and this next passage is, is him chopping in through that door to let us see a window into our own soul so that we can see truth. Jesus is very interested in us seeing the truth, seeing in him the truth. So that's kind of where we're at. There's this way that seems right to man but leads to death. We might look at it in the reverse and say there is also a way that seems very foolish to man that leads to life and power and weakness are involved here. So Mark 10, 32 is where we're going to pick it up and I want to read through the whole story and then I want to go back and and walk through it a little bit more slowly. Feel what the disciples are feeling here. Uh, Hear what Jesus, our creator, our brother, and our God is trying to say to us as a people in this day. Mark 10, 32. They were on the way, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going ahead of them, and they were amazed or astonished. But those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside again, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Look, he said, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the experts in the law. And they will condemn him to death. And he will, and they will turn him over to the Gentiles. And then they'll mock him. And they'll spit on him. And they'll flog him severely, whip him. And they'll kill him. Yet, yeah, after three days, he will raise again. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said, Well, Rabbi, teacher, teacher, w- we would like you to do something for us, whatever we ask. And he said to them, "Uh what is it you would like me to do for you? And they said to him, permit one of us to sit at your right hand and at your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I experience? And they said to him, we are able. And then he said to them, you will drink the cup. You will That I drink, you will drink that cup, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I experience. But to sit at my right and at my left is not for mine to—it's not mine to give. That's for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse forty-one. Now, when the other ten had heard this, they got angry with James and John, and Jesus called them, and he said to them. You know that those who are recognized as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions use their authority over them. You know this, but it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all or the servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life. The most powerful being in human history didn't come to get stuff from us, but he came to give something to us, to serve. It's a picture of power that Mark lands on here. Now, jump back with me to the beginning. That opening line is very cool. They're on the way, the haras. They're on the road. This word Jesus uses when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? I'm the haras. Kind of like I'm the road. So the same word can mean like a dirt road or the way of life. And I don't think Mark mistakenly uses it. I think he wants you to sort of see They're on the way with him. Yes, they're on a dirt road in the ancient world, but they're also in his life, learning to live alongside and with him. They're following the way of Jesus. They're on his way. They're living alongside him. They're paying attention to how he lives. Mark's gospel is a story about what happens to normal people when they engage with Jesus for real and try to live his life. And, it, and it, hasn't been, it hasn't been like this super fluffy, inspiring story, has it? it in fact, it's, in many ways, it's very brutal and difficult. And then there's that second line, Jesus was going out ahead of them. We might skip over this too quickly, but I want you to freeze for a second and just stare at that with me, okay? Here's Jesus way out ahead, and here's the disciples behind him. And and Mark tells us that they're not just falling behind him, you know, because Jesus is a new balance speed walker who had too many Americanos that morning. It's not, it's not like that. They're behind him, Mark tells us, because they're amazed or astonished, or you might say totally baffled, and they're scared. So they're kind of grouped up and tenuously following, but they are also drawn to Jesus. He's magnetic there's something about this man that is just captivating this grace he gives is is irresistible and so they're following but they're scared of him and i sit and i look at that picture and i think about the way that i generally hear us react to jesus which for for every one time, or for every 10,000 times I hear somebody just say, yeah, Jesus is all right with me, he's so cool I love it I hear that 10,000 times to one one time somebody saying, he scares me to death he is weird and he makes no sense based on all that I know and it makes me wonder sometimes if maybe and I've said this through this whole Mark series, maybe our vision of Jesus has become quite unbiblical Mark 10, I think, is speaking loudly to us because in many ways, this is a Jesus that we're like, I'm not super familiar with this kind of Jesus. I'm more familiar with the Jesus who wants me to have my best possible life, and I kind of like him better. (laughs) This one says, I have to give up my entire life and take his. So they're afraid, they're astonished, and yet they're following behind him. Now we tend to say, why are they so afraid and astonished? We won't go back through the entire uh, chapter, and Mark doesn't tell us right here, but if you think about the passage we've just read in the context, let's just roll back through the first three episodes we've already seen. Jesus walks in in the first, where are we at, the first 12 verses of Mark 10. He walks into what they would call a good, proven, godly, Biblical vision of marriage and divorce, and Jesus says, yeah, you, you're, you're wrong completely, and you've been wrong about that since Moses. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what? For thousands of years, you've been missing what God originally said about marriage. Let's jump it before Moses back to Genesis, and we'll see what God's heart really is, okay? And they're blown away. The next scene... They know about how to structure people in their world according to who's significant and worthy. And when you have a significant, worthy rabbi, you don't let the rabble come to him. You don't let insignificant people come and waste his time. So keep the kids away. And Jesus says, if if that's your heart, you're already dead. You're not anywhere near the kingdom of God. You've got to totally flip that around and they're disoriented by this. And then the third one, the last one, is this scene right before the one we're in and it's in and, and jesus has just told one of the holiest most bible believing most righteous leaders the respectable leader of the town he has said you're nowhere near eternal life because you love your blessings and you want to keep them and, and we say what in the world god gives us blessings so that we would have them and keep them and love them that's why he does that and jesus is like no if you love your blessings in and of themselves and and your hope is to keep them you're nowhere near my kingdom and that man if you remember departs and he's bummed he's like well that's not the kind of kingdom i want i want a kingdom that i can create and preserve and have for myself they're baffled they're disoriented and so they create a little distance behind Jesus between themselves and Jesus and yet they're still following worse than those ways of disrupting their social order and their ways of behaving and living together worse than that as I've mentioned already Jesus has started to say he's going to die and it's escalated if you've watched it carefully in chapter 8 he just gives the bare prediction I will be killed period In chapter 9 he says I'll be killed and I'm also gonna be betrayed I'm gonna be betrayed and and that's not what the Messiah would ever that wouldn't happen to him he's too powerful he's too smart he doesn't get betrayed and now he says look we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the best people in our in our religious community the chief priests the experts of the law the biblical experts And they will look at me and they will condemn me to death and I'll be mocked and I'll be spit on and I'll be, uh, they're gonna whip me until my bloody rib cage is showing and there's flies around me. I'm going to one of the most humiliating possible scenarios ever. And this is, if you're one of the disciples and you've been waiting for the Christos, the Messiah, this is not the speech you anticipated. He's way too strong for that to happen. We know what power looks like, and that's not power. That's weakness. The Messiah comes in a way that looks good and wise to us. He comes in power. So they're disoriented. And I, I think that at, at least he says, well, after three days I will rise again. So perhaps maybe that's when he's going to up the, step it up. And launch a surprise attack on Rome and finally he'll do what he's supposed to do and so I think that might be what the Zebedee brothers have in mind James and John when they come to Jesus was one of the most hilarious questions in the Bible I mean it's a great question isn't it hey Jesus we want you to say yes to our request before we ask it okay is that alright don't you want to hear Jesus's tone of voice when he responds to them <laughs> I totally do uh, Yeah, how about not? I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not your tool, (laughs) you know. What is it exactly you want there, fellas? Well, we want power. Lots of good, godly power. We'll totally use it for your glory. You know, you can kind of hear this in their minds. The kind of power that you're going to have where you finally crush your enemies and and you take your rightful throne. When that happens, we we just want to join you. We want to be with you we want to have that kind of dominion with you and jesus fires back at them he says you don't know what you're asking me but he didn't say it in the tone of voice i just did he gives it in an imperative imagine uh, the exclamation point he's almost yelling at him you don't know what you're asking it's like when frodo asked gandalf to take the ring you know take the ring you're wise and powerful gandalf fires back at him he's like Do not tempt me. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking to me. They think their question is, Jesus, will you please give us an opportunity for upward mobility and good power and honor? Will you give that to us, please? That's what they think they're asking. But Jesus knows that what they're really asking is, will you please help us experience rotten death forever? (laughs) You know, and, and the loving Jesus he is is like, no, I don't wanna I don't wanna help you experience that. They think they're asking for something good, but they're not. Like at the cross, when good, godly, religious leaders are feeling confident as they watch the evil Jesus bleed to death, the evil blasphemers, and they say, Good, we've done a good thing here. And Jesus says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It kind of makes you and I wonder about the things that we're doing that seem so wise and so godly. i kind of ask, what would Jesus say to us? Where are the places in my life where Jesus would say to me, you are so far off base and you don't even know it? And notice it's not a condemning critique. It's that sort of it's that powerful, wise friend who says, do you have any idea how much you're messing this up? You know? Where would Jesus say that to us? I think we need to pray like the psalmist. Search my heart, O oh God. Show me, show me what I'm missing. Show me the places in my life that my mind has become darkened. They think they want some, they're asking for something good and what are they asking for? A power that is the ability to have a controlling influence over other people. All for God's glory, of course. Doesn't God want his people to share in his power? Like he said to Adam and Eve. Isn't that what we're all asking for, really? Just to join him in having dominion? Actually, I think that is what they're asking. But... Like Adam and Eve, they confuse the Creator with the created. You say, well, why does that matter? When you confuse the Creator with the created, your mind becomes darkened. Paul says this in Romans 1. They started to worship the created things, and their minds became darkened. They replace loving God and loving one another with controlling reality to achieve my desires. God alone has control because God alone is the creator. Period. This is really, this is at the heart of it. When he says, don't eat of that tree or you will surely die, that's not a malicious threat of retribution. It's God describing their reality. This is the reality in the world that I've created. If you do this, you're surely going to die. But Adam says, you know, I too have some control over reality. And so I actually can eat of that tree and not die. I share God's power like that. But that doesn't work. Only God is God. He's not the great we are. He's the great I am. The power that God breathes into humankind when he creates male and female in his image is his own power to love. God never suggests to Adam that he has control over the outcomes. Adam is receiving life from God, or should be, not creating life on his own terms. There's a radical difference there. And so Adam follows a way that looks wise, but it's a way that ends in his death. The real power in that moment for Adam would have been to stay with God in love for God and for Eve. You see, in that moment, Adam let go of his love for God, and instead he embraced admiration for God. When you admire somebody, you want what they have. They're real. You put them on a pedestal. It's like, oh, if only I could have that. When you love somebody you want to be with them you see that's very different and adam let go of his desire to be with god separating himself from god and instead said boy i, I totally admire god he's super powerful i want to be powerful like that and so i can write my own rules he should have said that had he stayed in the love of god he might have said something like this no thank you satan it is a way that looks good to me but i don't want what only God can have. I love Him. And by living in His love, I am not dissatisfied with the kind of life that He has given. Instead, I'm thankful for my life. And I'm not trying to kick against God and saying, it wasn't enough, God. I want some of that controlling influence as well. And I think that for us, men and women, that right there is the power of God alive in a human being. And I think already you can start to see how embracing that kind of love for God and love for the other human being starts to transform everything in our life. It transforms your work, your parenting, your school, your dating relationships, your life in retirement. It transforms all of it. Life on my own terms is just a fancy way to describe rotten death. So here's Jesus, and he's watching these Zebedee boys do the same exact thing. They want the same thing that Adam wanted, and it killed Adam, and Jesus wants to help them change. So he answers them with his own question. They say, hey Jesus, will you give us some of that power? And he says, are you willing to live in God's love on God's terms, okay? Are you willing to take this cup? Are you willing to receive the same baptism? Are you willing to live the way that I live in the world? Because that is the heart of power. Baptism, Mark says here, it sort of takes us back to the beginning of Jesus's story, at least in the Gospel of Mark. And then taking the cup launches us all the way up into the, the, the next part or the end of Jesus's story, especially we think of Gethsemane. And so I think the point is, can you enter into my life for real? Is that something you're willing to do with all of its pain and all of its loss? Oh, yeah, faux show. Sure. We're good. That's not a problem, Jesus. We would love to do that. And Jesus, I, again, I want to hear his tone of voice a little bit and, and just see what he's working with, but he kind of responds favorably toward them. All right, I can grant that kind of suffering to you in the future. And in that way, you can share in the cup and the baptism with me. However, the folks who are gonna sit at my left and right, well, that's not even for me to give. That's a place that has been prepared for those for whom it's been prepared. That's outside of where I'm at. And so now, this is where the story turns really hard. This is fireman Jesus. He's got his fire ax, you know, they're cool axes, the big, okay? He's got his fire ax flying he kicks down that dead bolted door wide open and we, and we get to look into our own souls. The Zebedee's door to their soul was shut. They did not know what they were asking, Mark says. But a few sentences later, they do know about the authority and the power that this world loves. Now when the other 10 had heard this, they became angry with James and John. They heard the question James and John asked, and they got mad at James and John. They were not happy. They weren't mad at him because they were like, hey, you should know better. Don't be asking that question. That's a wrong-headed way to think. That wasn't it at all. They were like, no fair. Why do you get to call shotgun? We want the same seat, you know. Why do you get to be in front of us? They're kind of clamoring for the top. Jesus knows where their hearts are, and so he says this to them in verse 42. You do know this. You don't know what you've been asking for, but you do know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, well, they lord it over them. Those in high positions use their authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of all. You don't have a middle class in this world. The rulers of the Gentiles, the elite they exercised tremendous control over their estates, over their status in the culture, over the way people thought and behaved. They had a lot of control, and they knew it, and they used it to keep things the way that they wanted. Those at the top guarded their privileges. We think at this point there's probably maybe one5 to 2% would fit in the elite class. You've got 98, 98.5% that are low class, servant-slave class, okay? so it's a, And there's not a middle buffer zone. It's a major disparity. Rank, said the Roman statesman Cicero, rank must be preserved. If you get to the top, baby, you hang on to that. You don't let it go, you don't let it get challenged. Rank must be preserved. The Roman senator Tacitus, he dismissed everybody who was not in the elite class as rabble. <laughs> he said, they're all just kind of insignificant rabble. And then his own, he said, we are the citizens of reputation. We're the good ones. And I, and I sit and I say, man, do I look at a certain people group in my world and I think of them as rabble? They're less than me. Are there people in Portland that I would think of as lower, more insignificant than I am? And then my heart hurts a little bit. Do we gravitate towards citizens of reputation, people who are respectable? And if so, I don't want you to hear a call here to just be ashamed and start wallowing and, oh, I'm the worst, I do think that way. No, hear Jesus' invite to step out of that and say that's actually diminishing you and others. You can step into real life. Step out of that way of thinking. It was the servant-slave-worker class that Jesus points to here The men and the women who literally lived one harvest to the next, and they are dependent on their God or their gods, you know, to give them life. This isn't a theological abstraction. This is reality for them. And the distinction, I think, is crude, but it's crucial. The elite believe that they have the power to control things to create their own significance. It's called personal ambition. It's the way from below power. The servant class believe that they have no control over anything. They're at the behest of another. Their life and significance can only be received at the mercy of the gods. It's it's called dependence. And then Jesus isn't saying, if your net worth is low, you're going to heaven. It's not simple like that. He's talking about the condition our attitude and our heart and where we're at, and he's like, if you're in that low spot, that's, that's a different place because you're already in a lifestyle of needing and being dependent on others. You don't have the illusion that you're in control of everything. This is why Jesus, I think, said in the previous episode that it is insanely difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He's not just making a simplistic statement there about, well, if you're greedy, then you're too immoral for heaven. I think what he's saying there is if if you have a heart like that, you literally cannot live in God's kingdom because that's a self-seeking heart. It's like trying to go into outer space and and survive without a spacesuit. You can't do it. You're not built for it. The power that James and John are asking Jesus for is the power to control. They're wanting something that will help them climb the ladder. In the Scriptures... Challenge that notion. The power of God from above is the power of Jesus to love. It's not the power to control others. So I want to end here with two different readings. Um, because I, and I, maybe like you, I have this sort of gut check that happens with me in Mark 10. I realize as I read this passage and I sort of reflect on my own life with you and as a pastor, I so deeply want you to see my strengths and I don't want you to see my weaknesses. And so I want to hide those and I want to keep them outside of your vision because I want you to have a powerful leader, one who's strong and mighty, that kind of thing. And I read this and I, and I see the way of Jesus and I realize, man, I think I'm out of line on that. I know I am I want to impress people I want them to admire me and weaknesses failings that doesn't help with that kind of thing and yet Jesus says to us Ben, that that shouldn't be that way among you that shouldn't be how you think of one another but I'm there the gospel of mark for me it's been jackhammering my heart like you can't believe for the past couple of weeks, I think, even before that, and I stand before you and I feel inadequate. Not hopeless, but inadequate. Jesus continues to wake me up, and I think that he's doing that with each of us. So I want to read two things. They're just concluding thoughts from other authors. The first one will be from two pastors, wrote this book called The Way of the Dragon and The Way of the Lamb. It's a phenomenal book. I'd encourage anybody to read it. But they're pastors who have walked through this same kind of thinking, and they went around the world interviewing other pastors and church leaders, asking the question, have we embraced the way from below in terms of power and neglected Jesus' way of life? And over and again, they just reveal this amazing scene, and it's it's a little bit daunting. So what kind of power are we hoping for? What kind of power do we want to see in our churches? Here's, Here's some writing from... Uh, Pastor Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel, who wrote this. When we embrace the way from below, we embrace the way of Adam, which is the way to death. The challenge, of course, is that the way from below appears to be so wise. The path is wide. The companions are many. The destination seems desirable. The road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. Our feet are trained to find paths of self-achievement, and self-glorification. Jesus, we want the most glorious position in the universe. Can we sit at your right and left? That's what we want. We use our vocations to build up our significance. We use our relationships to get ahead. We spend our money and our time trying to gain more power. Because we are prone to waywardness, prone to walk the path of pride, self-sufficiency, and power, we need the church to ground us in Christ and in His way. We cannot live in Christ's way on our own. This, this likely sounds right to us, but many of us functionally doubt our need for the church. Pursuing the way of Christ seems more like a me and Jesus kind of endeavor, but that focus on ourselves reveals a deep foolishness. We have no hope of pursuing the way of Jesus above or apart from the church. When we enter the household of God, we are still planted in the way from below. But the church is called to mirror the truth of our hearts and to witness to the truth of Christ. In every facet of its mission, the church is called to to equip us, to strip us bare, Of our deep-seated desire to self-fulfill the church calls us to repentance and it invites us to die so that we may have eternal life in Christ alone sadly rather than calling us to walk the way from above often we have been affirmed and we've even propagated the way from below Then this author points to our culture and he says, look, you guys, we are drunk. We are inebriated on power. So much so we don't even know it. We're in need of an intervention. In many ways, we openly affirm the way from below. Instead of being told how desperately I am in need of God, I'm told about how desperately God needs me to fulfill whatever. We hear... Instead of being exhorted to pick up my cross and follow Jesus, I'm told that Jesus wants to come into my heart and partner with me so I can form a plan of life that rids me of all struggle. It rids me of all challenge and all weakness. That's what Jesus wants for me. I pursue my rightful life, liberty, and pursuits of happiness. And Jesus wants that. We hear gospels of moralism centered on, on our own personal power to become good. When we see articles and read books and even hear sermons that talk about a God that looks more like a resource for me on my own personal journey. Sometimes we think of God's power almost like gold dust that sprinkles down from heaven. He's a resource to me. We think of power as something he has, and then if we ask him for it, he'll give it to us so we have what it takes to do what we want. But it's not like that. He says, I am the way. Power is in the way that I live, and it's accessible to you because I've made it accessible through the cross. Think of Jesus' response to the guys when they ask for power. He says, are you able to drink my cup and be baptized in my baptism? That's a question about their willingness to enter into his life. Real power, Jesus is saying, is most vividly seen in the kind of attitude and the kind of heart that you see In an innocent man, willfully giving himself over, serving humanity, and becoming a ransom for many. Seeking the power of God is not doing whatever you love the most and then saying it's all for God's glory. It's stepping into his way of glory, which is the way of the cross. Can you drink the cup? and receive this baptism. Consider that this morning when we take communion. Yes, we approach with reverence for what Jesus has done, but we hear this question. Will you enter into my way of life as well? When we operate with the power from below, sermons become pep talks on a quest for significance. And that's what we like to hear. Instead of worship being an invitation to humbly adore God, revere Him, respect Him, Worship instead becomes an experience that's meant to lift me up above the travails of, of our average day. That's when we're seeking the power from below. Instead of hearing God's vision of redeeming all things in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we hear of the pastor's vision to grow our church, to make it significant again, and we want to be aligned with somebody significant so we can be significant too. That's the mentality of the power from below. It drives us to want to be special. God's love says you already exist that way. Now live that way. But we say, no, I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not yet. There's a way to know if I'm special and I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to give my life over to it. And Jesus says, be free from that, brothers and sisters. You don't have to. You and I, brothers and sisters, we are not called to ambitiously create our own significance, but instead to rest in the grace of God, whose power is perfected in our weakness. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Here's the last one. Jean Vignet, he was a mentor to the great Henry Nguyen, okay? Henry Nguyen was a a scholar who had risen up the ladder of notoriety and respectability. And in his heyday, he was packing out every single lecture hall he ever went to in Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, you name it. He was Ivy League, it was unbelievable. But then this man, Jean Vignet, met him. And as he did, uh, Nguyen was in a, a real tumultuous place in life and he totally opted out of that entire ladder of success and entered into community with John Vanier who helped to teach him about the way of Jesus outside of what he was climbing for. It's, it's really interesting. But here's what this brother of ours, John Vanier, says as he was kind of reflecting on his time with Nguyen and what they lived for together. And here is a litmus test for us because we read a text like what we've just read And we have that question, man, am I there? And it's hard to answer that question. But this, I think, will give you a little bit of a litmus test. Because when we're operating with the power from below to try to self-fulfill and self-create, human beings always become objects to us. They either help us advance or they slow us down. And then we don't have communities anymore of mutual love and concern. We just have groups where everybody's trying to do their own thing and receive their own way. So here's what he says. When living with people of disabilities, whose cry is for friendship and community and love, we discover that it's very difficult to love people. You see, I wanna believe that I'm a very loving person. I'm not weak in that arena. And so I want you to see my most loving side and I wanna hide all the places that I really don't love. It's almost like I can't fathom it. But when you live in the midst with people who have very significant needs, you're called to a different place. We have people here who can only scream. They can't give you anything. And our role is to reveal to them that they're more beautiful than they dare to believe. What I can say is that by living with people with disabilities, I have discovered my own disabilities, he writes, the gradual discovery That there is an anger within us. There is a violence within each of us. It's the Holy Spirit helping me to discover who I am and how things really are within me. We cannot really begin to know the truth about ourselves until we discover that we have difficulties and weaknesses. And community is the place where we discover our own fragilities and wounds and inability to love. Where our limitations and our fears and our egoism are all revealed to us. We cannot get away from the negative in ourselves. We have to face it. So community life brings a painful revelation of our limitations and of our weaknesses and our darknesses and the unexpected discovery of monsters within us. And the immediate reaction is to try to destroy those monsters or to hide them away or pretend that they don't exist or we try to flee from the community life and relationships with others assuming that the monsters are their monsters, not ours. They are guilty, not us. But the heart of the message of Jesus is be compassionate as my Father is compassionate. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Don't condemn so that you won't be condemned. The heart of it is this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you. We think that we have to be strong, we have to win, we have to be the best. So we believe that we should all be winners, but we are not all winners. So our experience of being loved and accepted in community allows us to accept ourselves as we are. We are broken, but we are beloved. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came and became broken with us because he loves us. Where are we in our culture here at Central Bible? Do we live in this community fully the way Jesus would? Or do we engage only in so far as it advances us in the way we desire do we see those among us who are in great need and suffering and feel drawn to them with a love and a desire to help, which is the power we see in Jesus? Or do we say, man, I've got my own problems. You're gonna. Ha- I hope you can deal with that because I'm trying to get here and I need the kind of people that can get me here. The power from below leads us to overloaded schedules, busyness, chaos, anxiety, and perpetual dissatisfaction with one another, with the church, even with God. The power from above leads us to peace with one another, approaching one another to serve them, not to get them to serve us. And this power from Jesus will create a community here in this church that is so honest and so helpful and so willing to embrace one another's weaknesses and reject the power from below that the truth of what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer will come to pass here in this group. We will become so strong in Jesus' power that the world will look upon the way that we live and they will say, "This this is not of the world. This has to be from God. Christ was truly sent by God, and he is the absolute way and the truth and the life. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us what real power is. Let's pray. Jesus, we have, in this world, uh, we have a very difficult time. There is a, there's a war within our heart and soul that is more powerful than we even like to admit and perhaps more significant than we even know. Would you please have mercy upon us and show us your way? We, we, stand, we stand before you and we see what you're inviting us to and it feels so daunting and yet you tell us your yoke is light. And you have showed us what to do and you have said that your grace is sufficient for us. Help us to believe that and live that way. Help us to become men and women who don't try to take from one another but who are here to serve one another the way that you did toward us. We love you, we trust you, and we think you are awesome. Amen.